Yeah, so that's Temporal IO. What more can you tell us about it, Isla? Isla, 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 Isla. Uh, Ira. Welcome to GCP Life. This is episode number seven. Today's show is sponsored by Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. I am your host, Stephen Bancroft. And on today's show, we watch the Kubernetes documentary, Google launch a raft of new features, we take a look at Temporal I.O., and we find out which cloud certifications are really in demand. But before we get to any of that, I want to welcome once again the host that's with me every fortnight, Ida Bailey. How are you going, Ida? I'm going good. Yeah. Just had a busy morning. I realized I had scheduled a security cert exam for today <laughs> and just made it in time and, um, oh. and passed. So I'm well very happy done. about that. Well yeah. done. Well done. That's the Google Cloud professional, uh, security S- professional. Yeah, that's right. Yep, 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 yep. Have you? Um, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna put it out there. Have you done the network professional, sir? I have not, but well, I've spent well, too well. much time digging around <laughs> in the network for that. Well, so. well, well. You've done them in the right order. You do the security one first, and I tell you what, you're gonna have it handed to you if you sit that network one. Okay, <laughs> that's a piece of work, but I'm sure you'll smash it in either. I'm sure you'll smash it. Cool. Yeah, and that's a that's an excellent cert. You'll learn a lot doing it as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a few gaps that kind of highlighted for me as well. I was like, ah, oh, that's right. The, the whole difference between private and restricted Google APIs. Yep. So, yep. So yeah, I yep, need to yep. figure that and one using, out. <laughs> using private Google access, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you've done it the right way around because the security cert will um, introduce a lot of concepts that are talked about in the that you, you tested on in the network cert i did them the wrong way around i did the network cert first and oh, it was okay you know I, I managed i figured it all out but then when i sat the when i started studying for the security one i went oh wow okay the penny dropped <laughs> right, 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 right i should have done it that way yeah um yeah and um look while we're on the subject of certs um we sh- we probably just should um talk about a correction from last week i think i um i think i talked about the um the data and the ml certification being in the same cert it's actually that's incorrect um the reason i said that is because a cloud guru lumped the data and ml uh learning path into one learning path and you and you do all the courses in that learning path um the, the correct uh, lists of certifications are, uh, as we just talked about, the security, uh, the security professional, the network professional, uh, the cloud architect, the cloud developer, the data engineer, the cloud DevOps engineer, uh, the collaboration engineer, and the machine learning engineer. So data and ML are actually uh, distinct uh, certifications. Um, yeah, just... just uh, just to make sure we get that correct on this show, because we're all about getting things correct. I um I went and priced up a new rig during the week. Not cheap, I tell you what, not cheap. At the moment, I'm looking. Uh, I like the idea of Ryzen nine. I want the cores. Most current systems are twelve 
12 thread or six core 12 thread the, the Ryzen's a nine core will give me 24 threads um place i'm looking at it's got a good package with a x570 uh, asus motherboard um 32 gig ram idx 3080 i was thinking 3070 ti um but if you want to get the ac model which man, i'm not much of an overclocker it, the price basically falls out to be the same you may as well get the 3080 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what basically the water. I mean, I'm talking in the ballpark, 4K ballpark, just to do that. Stings. Well, that's the GPU, right? Well, the GPU is half of that, yeah, about two grand. But yeah. I figure it'll be a 10-year build, right? I mean, the system I've got now is past 10 years. Um, yeah, if you're lucky, you can, uh, you know, a couple of years, you sell the GPU for 4K, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's the rate it's going. Um, I, I just got a twenty RX RTX twenty seventy super, and yep. it came with it was two years old, and it came with the receipt, which was uh, I think I paid a hundred dollars more than the, <laughs> the person paid for it. <laughs> oh wow! It's like Ooh. so. Don't wait. Hey, get in, get in. If you see a good price, grab it, snaffle it. Um, and this particular one is a low hash rate card, so and, and that seems to be the only reason they have stock yeah um the, the vendor i'm looking at the ones that don't say low hash rate they're out of stock of those cards funny that yeah oh and the other, the other thing i want to say pro tip pro tip anyone listening this is what i've been dealing with this morning if if you're doing infrastructure as code please please resist the temptation to go into the project and click up stuff that's what I've been unpicking this morning. Problems that have been caused by ClickOps. Terraform state. And you, you go to, you go to deploy something in Terraform and it's, it either throws an error or something like, oh, that resource exists or I uh, can't delete that resource or something along those lines. And then you basically have to unpick everything and you've got all dependencies all the way down the line for all the resources. And yeah, and then you cause problems. Sometimes. So yeah. don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Um, make another project, right? So the way you should be doing your ISC is developing your, your pipeline so that you can easily deploy that and just drop it into another project. We've got that beauty in, in Google Cloud, uh, and that's the way I've done this project. I can just, if uh, I get asked to do something in their production environment, I'm not sure what the change is going to do. Um, they, they do have a dev stage and prod, but there's obviously minute differences between those, and I want to test the entire prod build. Um, I've, I've done the um, Terraform in a way it's wrapped up in some bash so that I can just deploy that Terraform to a fresh new project and it just installs straight away as a prod environment. And then I can change and test and do whatever I like. Sweet. That's the way to do it. Um, there's one other thing here. Not, what's this Nomulus bug? You seem to know about this, Ida. Uh, yeah, I was just taking a look because um, we're – Talking about Google Cloud, um, yeah, yeah. taking a look at some of the open source repos that Google has got. Um, and yeah, I saw the Anomulus is Google's um, domain registrar software, um, and it's all open source. Um, it runs on App Engine. And yeah, I just saw that um, they have a, uh, we're using a library from 2019, which allows you to basically, it seems to basically, uh, doesn't it's used for checking um, your your authority on your domain and whether you have authority for that particular domain, 
Um, and it seems to just be someone's raised an issue saying you should really fix this. And it's been sitting there for quite a while. So I'm just like, <laughs> be interesting to take a poke at it and see what you can do. So um, I've been actually built out and deployed the whole Nomulus registrar stack actually did that last night um, in my own project. Um, Fun little project. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty crazy to see how all the, the domain name sausage gets built, um, which is it's pretty crazy, the, the, the scope and architecture of everything that was set up. Right, so could you, um, could you leverage this... Uh um, I bug? thought I would deploy it first into my thing and then poke around. I can yeah. update the next podcast. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, we'll but I didn't want to, like, you know, go full steam. On, ongoing. On Ida's ongoing hack project. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll keep you updated. Um, but the link will be there in the show notes. Have a look at that. Um, this apparently is what's being used currently inside Google. And uh, they've got this open CVE on it. So interesting. Um. Yeah, all right, let's get cracking. And talking about how the sausage is made, the Kubernetes documentary has been released. It's out. Um, did you get to see it during the week? Yeah, right I've up. seen part one. I haven't seen yeah. part two yet. I think it just came out. Um, but yeah, really interesting to see how, uh, yeah, just this, the, the logic they went into behind, like, oh, why we have to build this thing and get it working. Um, and yeah, what, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I watched both parts. Um, Look, it covers a period from about 2013 to 2017. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away because people have got to watch it themselves, right? But um, they spend a lot of time talking about Docker, and, and that's, that's more or less part one where they're talking about Docker. And, of course, they talk about the Solomon's t- demonstration at dot scale in uh, 2013. That was a big impetus to, to kick this thing off. And I think inside Google there was, there was a small group that, more or less wanted to create a personalized Borg system. Um, um, that was kind of the inspiration for Kubernetes. Um, and there were other container systems around at the time, uh, but they, uh, they, were, they were sort of bulky. They were required a lot of engineering to work with. Um, they were really sort of limited to big enterprise environments. Uh, and the thing that set Docker apart, obviously, was its simplicity. Uh, and the fact that it was open source and was available to everyone. Um, and they were able to more or less create a uh, personalized Borg, syst- um, Borg system uh, using Docker and hack together some scripts. And the, I, I won't give away too much, but the documentary goes through on how that developed and you know the competition from AWS, because AWS obviously at the time were huge and they were the, they were the more or less the only player in the market in, in anything in 2013. And uh, some people, uh, players like you know, Microsoft and Google and, um, um, and, and some other open source companies wanted a piece of the pie. And the funny thing that I took away from it is that Google were really, I wouldn't say they were hostile towards open source. I just, I just don't think they understood it. I don't think they understood... Uh, what the potential was and the, and the need to open source something like this if they wanted to get community adoption. And they, they go into that quite, they spend a lot of time on that in the documentary on, on how they got the Google executives over the line to get them to understand that, that it needed to be open source. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I enjoyed watching it. I'll probably watch it again. They they pack in a lot of um, – it's very dense on information. They pack a lot in there, and you need to – you probably need to watch it a few times to, to get get the full the full juice out of it. Um, interesting, um, they go into um, Pokemon Go and how um, Pokemon Go – I will give a little, a little bit away here um, – how Pokemon Go runs GK, and it was the first big – uh, big deployment of GK at the time, and they knew it was going to explode. They knew it was going to expand. They, they obviously they designed GK so that it would do that, uh, but it got fifty times the load than they expected on launch. Fifty times, everyone with their phones running around chasing these invisible. Yeah, it was pretty Pokemon. crazy. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, even I did it a little bit, right? So I was part of that. Um, but it it took it. It it handled it. Um, and it's very clear that the guys at Google were freaking out. <laughs> were freaking out about that gun. It's not. The, no, we haven't tested it to do any of this. And the guys at Pokemon were like, "Yeah, okay, well, it's fine. We'll, this is what we're doing." <laughs> yeah, I hope they didn't have a uh, mates rates and they were able to get a bit more money. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and you know, I, I think, looking at it as an open source, um, you know, you see this a lot in a lot of open source projects the reason really and they mentioned this in documentary uh reason kubernetes really won is purely because of the rate of change and the number of developers that were contributing to it it just got the momentum and just got developed and developed and developed and developed and developed and, and, and you see that that that's more or less how open source uh projects work right if if uh, everyone moves off the project and starts doing something else well it dies it just withers on the vine yeah, and the, the fact that it's more of a almost like an API platform that you can you know extend and add your own custom APIs, and that can all be kind of controlled in this big ecosystem. Um, it's pretty easy to extend. Um, and the other interesting thing is the whole cloud native computing foundation was driven out of uh, Docker as well. They go into that quite extensively in the documentary. Um, how there was a need for that uh, because. Developers and uh, other organisations weren't going to get on board if they thought that this thing was centrally controlled. Yeah, yeah. I have a funny anecdote to say about that. I remember being in a meeting with someone from one of the, let's say, three big clouds, <laughs> um, who was kind of a product manager level, and they were saying, "Oh, you know, sometimes we've just got to buy the person, <laughs> basically, <laughs> steal yeah. the person." Like hire the person who's who's running some of the stuff. Who runs yeah. the open source project? Just hire the well, person. No, who's on? Who's like the chair of the particular um, special interest group? And it's kind of that, that everyone kind of knows that and does that. So it's a bit of a you know, if you want your stuff to get in, you, it, it, that's how that's, they play politics. That's sometimes. how you do it. Yeah, it yeah. is politicking, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well. Um, Take a look at it. Links are in the show notes to both uh, parts, part one and part two. I did have a little dig around to try and figure out who these honeypot people are um, that did the documentary. They've done other documentaries. Um, they, uh, I'm still not quite sure, but they seem to be, they promote themselves as a reverse recruitment agency. That seems to be the way they sort of, got started and the idea behind that is if uh you know you're a, you're a smart engineer you put your 
you put your CV with them and then the agents come to them and then they recruit you another, the other way, the opposite way. So you advertise to the, to the employers. Oh, um, weird. Yeah. 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 So that, that seems to be part of what they do. Um, they branched out, they've created, they've got a podcast going, um, and they've got, uh, a, a series of documentaries they've made as well. Um, what we got here, we've got one on Vue.js, one on, and one on Elixir. And a couple of mini documentaries as well. Um, yeah, so I might check them out one day. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this Kubernetes one certainly high production value, um, really well made. And I'm looking forward to seeing more from them, actually. Okay, let's move on. Um, GCP have launched a bunch of new features. Um, and they. I don't know if I missed some of these um, over the break or if they've just come out now, but we'll just go through them here. Um, VMware uh, is now available as a single node cluster, which is great. And I've actually been working with this during the week. Um, of course, in the past, if you were going to deploy to GCVE, you'd need to spin up a multi-node cluster and, and do all the faffing around that comes with that and the cost that comes with that. This is not for the faint-hearted, I must say. Um, but now uh, you can have a single-node cluster and the way it works is you just spin your single-node cluster up, do your POC or whatever you need to do. It, it survives for 60 days and at the end of 60 days, it deletes itself. If you want to before that 60 days expires you can upgrade it to a full cluster a full multi-node cluster um that should be enough to to run up a adequately sized bill <laughs> do what you need to do <laughs> um yeah yeah really handy um so what would be the i guess the use case more like testing out all of this vehicle in the cloud kind of thing without yeah. having to yeah, build a whole cluster. Testing, training, POCs, cool. that that kind of thing, and and that's kind of what I've been doing as well. I I had to learn a couple of things where we're doing some stuff with HCX, which is the um like VMotion um that's included with it. That that'll that it does two things. It VMotion's a server and it stretches the uh, it tunnels layer two across the two sites. So when you mm. VMotion, it takes all the IPs and everything with it. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been trying to play with and, and learn and figure out how that works. Um, so that's, that's really handy to have. And, um, you know, but the, 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 prob the trouble is, you know, if it's still prohibitively expensive. If you're an individual trying to learn this stuff, I wouldn't be doing it on GCVE. I mean, your, your best bet, um, are, you know, sadly at the moment, um, if you want to learn VMware, get a secondhand server and, and put the, the, the trial license on it and, and learn it that way. Um, then once you've got your chops with it, move into this and um, try and get your POC up and running nice and quick so you don't have to pay the, the bill. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a cool feature. Um, another thing they've introduced is big table auto-scaling. Uh, big table nodes now support up to five terabyte per node up from two and a half terabytes for SSD and 16 terabytes for, per node, up from eight terabytes for HDD. Uh, cluster groups provide flexibility for determining how customers can route their application traffic. Pretty cool. Uh, and more granular utilization metrics um, improve observability. Um, 
It's good to see those products getting some updates. I, think, I don't think I've seen much in the way of updates for Big Table for a while. No, no. Big scaling, uh, auto scaling for Big Table automatically scales the number of nodes, you know, cluster up, up or down based on changing usage demands. As a result, it reduces the risk of over provisioning and recurring, incurring unnecessary costs and under provisioning, resulting in missing business opportunities. Yeah, so the other um, uh, database of you know services do do similar. Um, so it's about time they did it with Bigtable. Links in the show notes for that one. And the other feature I liked that they introduced was um, Webhook, PubSub, and Slack alerting is now in GA. So that's been there for a little while, um, but now it's fully supported. Um, I have. Uh, we're excited. To, I'll, just, I'll just read it from the blog here. We're excited to share that Google Cloud monitoring webhooks, PubSub, and Slack notification channels for alerting are now general availability, along with our existing notification channels of email, SMS, mobile, and pager duty, which is still currently in beta. Google Cloud Alerts can now be routed to many widely used services. These notification channels can be used to integrate alerts with the most popular collaboration, ITSM, incident management, and virtually any other software service that supports webhooks or PubSub integration. Cool. Yeah, we use a lot of those uh, where I'm working at the moment. Yeah, and I can actually see this working for us, Ida, because, um, you know, at most of our clients, we've got a Slack channel there. and we've got projects for them so we can just hook this in to our slack and bingo we're getting alerts for it yeah and if, if you are using it for you know incident incidents you definitely want it to be a ga service not a we're just going to change it and exactly if this is going to be your primary alerting mechanism you you need it but you know i wouldn't just personally i wouldn't just go with one of these anyway mm. um you know depending on the severity of the incident i would be using you know, two or three of these channels at least. Um, email, definitely email. I mean, that's harmless, right? You can just email it out and then the user can manage the email at their end. Um, SMS is a, is a big one, right? Because everyone's had the phone. Anyone's worked in operations had the phone near their head at night and the SMS goes off and you jump on it, right? Um, but now we've got Slack as well. So we can do a lot with Slack and we can even, I guess, we can even sort of move down the automation path with Slack. Hmm. So, yeah, I was happy to see that in GA. Um, and finally, this last new feature that's been released, um, I really like this one. Um, I don't know if you've ever played with AlphaFold, either. I have not. haven't played with AlphaFold. So what AlphaFold is, it's a, a predictive tool that will uh, predict the folded shape of a protein given the protein sequence, right? And and they use this uh, in in medical research and um, you know studies and things. So if I look here, uh, we can pick say E. coli as a demonstration. Um, and there's one of them there. And, and there and there we have the shape of the E. coli based on this this string of uh, proteins. Now this this happens in a predictable way this folding, right? Um, and as you can imagine, there's millions and millions of combinations. And uh, using the data from previously known folded proteins, we can predict the shape of unknown ones. 
right now yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to it, it is pretty amazing and it, it it does it with a very high level of accuracy now you can see it gives you a level of accuracy here it tells you you know it's 92 percent there and as you go out towards the end it gets less and less accurate um out here's like 44 percent confidence score right um but you can do this now in in um vertex ai you can do this yourself right it supports Vertex AI. So now today we are proud to announce another deep integration between Google Cloud and Alphabet's AI research organization. The ability in Vertex AI to run DeepMind's groundbreaking protein structure prediction system, AlphaFold. Um, so my understanding of this, and once again, I had to read this three times, <laughs> right? Uh, you basically have a Jupyter notebook. Uh, you feed this into your Vertex AI. And then it, it spits that out into the artifact registry and it, it gives you um, these uh, PDB files, which are the th rendered 3D files of the protein. Uh, I'm trying run. to think of a particular use case that, you know, if I was designing recreational drugs, <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, I can't think of any other use cases. Well, for us, no. For <laughs> us, no. But... <laughs> But, but researchers can have this now available to them within a few clicks. That's, that's the point of it. Uh, runs on an N1 standard 8, 8 CPU, 30 gig of RAM. Uh, you need a NVIDIA Tesla V100 GPU accelerator, recommended. And uh, really looks quite simple to implement. The, the blog here bounces you through how to do it. And uh, you can get your alpha file predictions like that. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing to go from... The like the theory of the model, I think basically being publicly announced like a year and a half, two years ago. To now, he's a you know fully deployable, production ready, like AI pipeline, machine learning pipeline. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty quick, pretty crazy. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you're going to get the um, you're going to get that network effect, right? So you're going to have everyone on it, and it's 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 now it can now effectively become a community science thing, where you've got all these people working and folding their proteins. Um, I think it was a community science project for a little while, um, going and, and doing this, but but um, you know it's probably reached protein crit at critical, home. Crit yeah, protein at home, at home or something like that. Yeah, folding yeah. at home. It, it, I think it's reached critical mass now that um, they're sort of over the hump with it, but. Yeah, this gives us another way to do it. So that's about it for new GCP features. So we'll move on to a discussion. And today we're going to talk about Temporal I.O. We built Temporal to simplify the process of building reliable and scalable applications. Over the next two minutes, we will explain what Temporal is all about. Temporal applications are written in plain old code using two types of special purpose functions, workflow and activity functions. Workflows are stateful functions used to orchestrate your application. This means all local variables and threads within a workflow are seamlessly and safely stored in the temporal service. If the underlying server crashes, temporal resumes the workflow to the exact line it was running before the crash. You can safely write code that blocks for days, weeks, and even years, eliminating the need for additional queues and databases to track temporary state. It's sort of like going from manually saving in Microsoft Word to autosave in Google Docs, but for running applications. Pretty cool, right? 
The second building block of temporal applications are activities. Activity functions are used to encapsulate code that interacts with potentially unreliable services and can only be called within a workflow. If your activity fails because a service it depends on is down, it will be called again automatically without writing any custom retry logic. Activities are not stateful, but they do come with automatic retries, configurable timeouts, and they even support heartbeats. Temporal empowers developers to write highly reliable and scalable applications without needing to code around everything that will go wrong. It excels at orchestrating services, but is also great for data pipelines, resource provisioning, and much, much more. And the best part is that it's free and open source. Now that you know what Temporal is all about, it's time to start building some invincible applications. Yeah, so that's Temporal IO. What more can you tell us about it, Ida? Uh, yeah, Temporal IO is um, a framework and a, a solution for delivering um, workflows in a, in a very reliable and durable way. So something that kind of caught my eye is that um, when all, a lot of the places I'm working at, we've had uh, a whole bunch of, you know, microservices and they have this, uh, they're all kind of, you know, done the whole decoupling Um but when someone goes to create a you know a product that uses all of these things, and then you have to basically tie them all together, and then if one part fails, how do you know that it fails? Um, and designing and cre uh, creating all of that kind of logic to handle being a you know distributed system to handle weird spikes and latency, there's so much work that needs to go into it. Um, even if using things like event streaming models and then you're using like PubSub, um, you still need to have that um some of that logic really backed into all of your microservices around retries and error error handling. So um yeah what temporal does is basically give you a really nice and easy way of just saying, writing here's my workflow. I go from this task to this task to this task to this task. And um when you basically deploy it you um you all of that kind of logic is just much easier to reason about um and it makes that kind of workflow a first class citizen and so when you go have i got some failures in this workflow um you're looking at uh, a lot of all the the stats and data and status is already pushed to um elastic search that's kind of built into their their stack so getting out metrics and everything else is so much easier. Um, and yeah, I, 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 there are a lot of places that Netflix is now using it for their infrastructure and running Spinnaker. Stripe is using it. Um, they're basically building a whole platform where users um, to deploy things, you have to, you know, they write workflow engines for all the payment processing. Then um, uh, Uber's been using it for uh, basically managing all of the, the workflow around, you know, hiring a, a car to take you somewhere and then paying and then rating and everything. Um, it's really interesting kind of uh, like history of like who the developers were. So there's a, a couple of uh, in, uh, developers, engineers, um, Maxime and I think Samar, and they both worked on developing SQS and then they also the simple workflow service in AWS. And then uh, one of them worked for developing um, Azure Service Bus and which I actually have used in the past and 
then that got turned into um, a zero durable function. So they have, you know, SQS came out in you know, 2004. It's, it's quite a while ago. So they had a lot of experience building these like Webflow engines. Um, so yeah, they came together at Cadence uh, to develop Cadence in um, Uber. And then they basically, 2019, they quit and basically fought Temporal and turned it into a, their own project um, and company. So yeah, I'm seeing a lot of uptake and I think for cloud, generally cloud services are really distributed and managing that complexity is always really hard. And so Temporal is kind of filling the gap. So am I right in thinking it's kind of a message bus, like an uh, like a improved message bus? It does a lot more than that. It does like scheduling. It's like got a built-in. It's got like a stateless um, uh, services that are running. What's got like the workflows? It does uh, routing um, of messages. It's got like a whole message queue system built into it. But all of that is um, kind of stateless and auto scaling. But but also um, you can deploy it like as a Helm chart on Kubernetes and just one go um but then you've got this persistent store which could be uh postgres or it could be a whole cassandra cluster it doesn't really matter but basically they've done that kind of separation isolation that all the the work happens um in stateless kind of containers and then everything else is chucked into this persistent store so it could be uh yeah it could be anything kind of in the back end um yeah Okay, so how how would I implement this if I wanted to use it in some code I was doing? Um, so they provide um, a bunch of SDKs. So whether you're writing in Java or Go or Ruby or Python, um, you basically import the libraries and then you just a bit of configuration saying, here's my temporal server. Basically you create, you, you know, push tasks and you you can push you have a workflow definition which goes this is what needs to happen and you describe the steps and each of those kind of steps would be a calling a another activity which is kind of registered in in the system um there's a whole bunch of finer details about how everything works um but yeah so um there's a handy little cli tool you can kind of just query um, state of workflows. Um, it's got a UI. You can kind of click around and look at the state of things um, and see actually like timing flows about from which stage to which step. And then it can give you the cool thing is so once you've got it all tied in and you've got it built into your code, when a step fails, you'll get a, you know, direct the logs will be pushed into temporal. So you see, oh, right here is the, the error message for this particular step. You don't need to figure out on some weird queue somewhere. It, you know, it failed. Like yeah, it's right. it's all nicely nicely tied in. So in essence, if I was writing some code and I was calling an external API, I would wrap it up in this workflow, and it it would handle any problems that occurred from calling making that call. Uh, I guess you mean you'd would you write your call as a as a like a an activity, and then an activity. Sorry, yeah, yeah, uh, and then basically that. Um, when you error out or what are the status of that, but you get that gets basically returned back to temporal and then that gets stored as state. This is the task successful state and whether it's 
good or not. Right. Yeah. And and the other thing what I understand is if you make that call and the server that it's running on crashes in the meantime and then you have to move to another server, it maintains that uh, – it knows that it's already done that call. It, 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 yeah, yeah. So if, say, for example, of, your, your yeah. container or cloud run or something that was running that it just somehow died and yep. it didn't return a response um, – the, the workflow engine that's running is checking the state all the time, saying, have I got a return from this? And you see these like default timeouts. So you set your own timeout and says, oh, I haven't got a response. Try the activity again. And that'll create, that'll go off and, you know, create a whole another um, uh, work task. We'll put that basically to, to live nodes somewhere that can run that task. And then until it's keep, complete, until, until yeah. it's completed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, then it just moves to the next step. Um, yeah. So for Uber, they, they're using it for, you know, when you register, you know, I want to pick up going from this location, they've got this whole, this whole step, is the car here yet? No, keep trying. It's okay. Like, you know, or has a, has a driver accepted and they have this, the whole workflow, um, you could track, you know, from start to finish and you have all those metrics out Mm. from that Mm. workflow. And then you're really modeling in, in a better way the uh, I guess the customer journey, as they say, you know, your right. user stories, right? <laughs> um, and you're tying those metrics to individually to I guess part of the product, not these individual microservices, which are all kind of you know, they, they don't really relate. Exactly. Right. You just got all these microservices doing all these things, there's yeah. no there's no kind of glue holding them together. Yeah. And the cool thing is it doesn't have to be um, like a microservice, they call it. You can just write some code that says, "I'll oh, go off and raise a Jira ticket." Yep. Sit there waiting till the next three days until someone that status of the Jira ticket has moved to closed, or you know, or anything. So and then carry on with your carry activity. on. Has it got yeah, approval yeah, yep, somewhere, yep. or you know, part of what I like about it, and what I'm thinking about it would be great running Terraform in a really complicated environment like I'm working at the moment, where we don't control the network and we basically have to wait until. Um, someone else has done approved something and then created some IP address space or a subnet. And so, but we could trigger it, go off and, you know, request an IP address. And as soon as that's ready and it exists, then we can trigger the rest of our code. Right. Right. Because yeah. the, the, the things, the activities can be blocking, can't they? It yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter if, yeah, yeah. We'll yep. just sit there forever. All right. Trying, yeah. well, wherever long you sit. How long you sit. But yeah, yeah I think Terraform's yeah. got a, you know, default one hour. It's all. Yeah, okay, okay. So this is, yeah, ideally for, you know, long-running tasks. Well, things that could be long-running and need to be retried. Think, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I mean, it certainly sounds like interesting tech. And and you have implemented this somewhere, you, you, I thought you said? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, how? Not, not where, yeah. but how? <laughs> That's a better question. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I've just taken the Helm chart that we've got, um, uh, chucked it on a uh, local Kubernetes cluster and yep. just deployed it locally and tested it. Um, yeah, just they've got a great um, forum, uh, community.temporal.io, um, and you can just ask some questions and hop out. Um, yeah, seems quite cool. Cool. Well, that's temporal.io. Um, I just wanted to um, finish off here with the one that's probably a little bit um, 
a little bit lighter subject, uh, not such a heavy technical subject, this one. Come across this article, um, top 10 cloud computing certifications. Now, there are Google Cloud certs on this list, I'll have to say, but we're not number one. <laughs> According to this list, the number one is AWS Certified Cloud Practitioner. That really comes as no surprise. Um, I, I'm not sure about that cert. Uh, but they do say, it says, this course covers the basics of IT as well as the core functionality of AWS services. That sounds like an intro to AWS cert, um, which is interesting because the next one, Microsoft Certified Azure Fundamentals, is also an intro to Azure. And the third one, Google Associate Cloud Engineer, we made the list, is also an introductory cert. Mm. So the top three certs are introductory certs. Had someone um, having some basic idea of cloud is really quite good. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you. We talked about multi-cloud last episode. If you were shooting for a sort of the multi-cloud angle, they're probably the three to get, right? Mm. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, um, it's going to give you hands-on uh, across all three, and you're going to get a taste for it. And you know, if you if you're not in the cloud. Um, and you want to know what the best ones are, to, you know, the best cloud is, what suits you, then that's probably the way to do it. Do those three, find out which ones you like, and then, and then go deeper from there. Um, but then interestingly enough, number four on the list, now we start to get to the heavy hitters, the Google Professional Cloud Architect. Yeah, that's, that's the, the big one. That's yeah. the big one, right? That's the big one. Um, but it's not Azure, it's not AWS, it's the Google Cloud Architect, right? Yeah. Um, you, take the, you take the three introductory ones out of it and effectively the Google one tops the list, right? That's the way I, I read it anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was actually, the, the Google Professional Cloud Architect was the first Google, uh, Google Cloud certification I sat and there's a lot in it. Yeah, having, <laughs> having not having much Google Cloud experience and trying to digest all of that took a while. <laughs> it took quite a while. So um, probably don't go for that first if you're um, if you're new to cloud. Um, yeah, go for one of the ones we talked about before. Um, number five on the list: Microsoft Certified Azure Administrator Associate. So they have the Azure fundamentals and the Azure Administrator Associate. People with prior experience in IT support or as system administrators. Well, there you go. That'd be, that'd be a good one to get if you were, you know, a traditional Microsoft uh, sysadmin and wanted to get into cloud. Then that's yeah, probably definitely. the way to go. Yeah. Number six on the list, uh, Microsoft again. Um, Microsoft certified Azure Solution Architect expert. So that would be the equivalent to the uh, Google Professional Cloud Architect, I'd imagine. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I yeah. did that one, actually. You've done that one? How was that? Yeah. That was actually pretty hard. It was um, because you had to learn bizarre, weird things that your brain doesn't want to learn, like Windows Communication Framework, WCF, running on oh. IIS on, like, Windows Server 2006 or something. Oh. And how does it tie in with this? You are really, this is all coming back to me now. Um <laughs> which is a product which I don't think anyone uses. But if you do happen to run <laughs> some very old 
on-prem stuff and you want to push stuff into Azure, yeah. Then that's but anyway, yeah, it was pretty. Yeah. It was pretty hard. Um, but yeah, good exam. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And then coming in at number seven is equivalent course in AWS, AWS, AWS certified solution architect. That's at associate level, not a professional level, which is interesting. That I assume they have a professional level one. Um, oh, that's the uh, oh the AWS. Yeah, yeah. AWS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, design for cloud solution architect with some experience. Yeah. Um, and then they rounded off here with a couple of weird ones. Um, Comp TIA Cloud Plus. I didn't know that this cert existed. Uh, I knew there was a Comp TIA for you know everything. General, <laughs> ge- well, everything. But I, <laughs> my, my understanding was that it was uh, ge- sort of general computing, more general mm. computing. But um, yeah, this is non-vendor specific. Um, and. I just, I imagine just tell you about cloud stuff. Um, same again for number nine, certified in cloud computing. Uh, York University delivers that one. And number 10, cloud computing specialization. Just another um, University of Illinois um, covers uh, core distributed system concepts and cloud applications to fundamentals of cloud networking. Hmm. Um, so they're your top 10. Um, they... Other, I mean, you've got, the way I see that, the way they've broken that list down, you've got your introductory certs, uh, your associate level certs, and then your architect certs. Yeah. That's more or less the way they're looking at it. So they're trying to say, here are the certs that'll cover everything. There's not really any specialized certs on that list. Yeah, it's strange seeing the expert level or professional level one for AWS architect off that list. Um. I didn't actually take a look about about at how they, you know, created this list, but I'm interested to know whether yeah, they're you know, scraping CVs or job ads, job ads and things. Interesting. They uh, this is uh, Datamation. Uh, this article's on. I'll link it link to it in the show notes. Um, they don't really give details on how they derived that list. Um, maybe cloud computing job market. Yeah, possibly. Uh, oh, yeah. They've taken it from uh, CVs, possibly. But uh, interesting read. Um, you know, most uh, the big the big guys have all got at least two on there. Well, what's that? I mean, AWS has got two. Google's got two. Actually, Microsoft appears a f- what three times. Yeah, uh, yeah. Both their expert and associate. Uh, administrator and expert level um, and the fundamentals. So interesting list. Uh, Google Cloud's on there. I'm just going to stick with my Google search for the moment. There's plenty there to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, all right. And uh, we'll just finish up with a bit of housekeeping. I, uh, if, if, you, if you don't subscribe to the uh, GCP weekly newsletter, I think it's a weekly newsletter, isn't it? Peter, um, yeah. by, by a guy by the name of Zenko. Um, he, he summarizes um, oh, a, lot of, a lot of new uh, Google articles and uh, a lot of Google Cloud news stories. And he lists podcasts on there. We are now listed in his newsletter. Awesome. So I was pretty happy when he I just sent him the email and bang, next newsletter that came out, we're listed on there. 
So that was that was pretty cool to see. So we're it's all official now. It's all official. And uh, look look for us on LinkedIn as well. Um, there'll be regular posts on LinkedIn from Kazna, and uh, you'll you'll hear our dulcet tones in the ads. I'm sure. All right, well, that's about it for us. Um, you got anything to add, Ida? Uh, no, it's been great. I'm happy to, you know, that we've officially launched this We're podcast. Officially it's launched awesome. Now. Yeah, it is awesome. It is awesome. And slightly horrifying as well. Yeah, out of <laughs> stealth mode. Out of stealth mode, that's it. Don't forget to look up Kasna Between Two Clouds, our YouTube channel. And don't forget to contact us, gcplife at kasna.com.au. We've also got the Twitter, GCP Life, and our new website, casna.com.au slash GCP Life. And the sponsor for today's show, of course, is Casna. At Casna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. And that's it for us for another two weeks. I'll see you later, Ida. Catch ya. Didn't feel like fifty-one minutes. I looked at it there. I looked at it there at one point. It's like twenty minutes. How are we going to fill in another twenty minutes? <laughs>